The following recording is a presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome you to visit our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Now, if you would please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 12, and when you found the Romans passage, hold on to that and we return to Paul's second letter to Timothy, chapter 1. Now, I want to read from Second uh, Timothy again, where we find a, a scripture that establishes the theme for the message today and gives us this title, Fan the Flame of the Faith. Now, while you're looking for that scripture, I, I want to mention that I am anxious to get back into our regular sermon series on Sunday mornings, we're studying Second Thessalonians, and it's now been 12 weeks since we last studied in Paul's two letters to the Thessalonian church. There are about eight messages, I believe, left in that series, living in the light of Christ's return. And soon after we get back into church, I think I will go ahead and resume that series. Now, this past several weeks, since we've been unable to assemble, I've I preached messages from different places in the Scripture, and skipping around is not my favorite method. But today, I would like to talk to you about service. The Christian life is a life of service, and this is the reason that when we're saved, we're not immediately taken into heaven. The Lord leaves us here to work for him. He leaves us as instruments to build his church and to bring others into the kingdom of God. He leaves us here to give the gospel of Christ, which is the means that he uses to save his elect. Now, I know that you are very much aware that Christ receives glory through his church. We continually emphasize this, that we are saved to glorify God. And the scriptures couldn't be clearer than when they say in Ephesians 3, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus. So if you're not a working, functioning member of the Lord's church, then you are a disobedient Christian. Uh, you fail to obey and glorify God in the chief way that God designed for his people to give him glory. And, of course, this is at the top of the reasons that we don't want to be separated from each other and unable to gather as the church, because in our worship together, we glorify God. And that's what we are saved to do. Now, if you look at this scripture in 2 Timothy 1, verse number 6, the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy. Uh, this is his final letter before he was put to death. And he writes this emotionally charged letter in which he passes the torch of his ministry to be carried on by Timothy. Now, here in the sixth verse of chapter one, he writes, Whereunto I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. Now, I want you to notice the phrase that thou stir up the gift of God. This is the basis of our title Fan the flame of the faith. This phrase, stir up the gift, takes its meaning from stirring up a fire. It means to, to blow on the embers when they start to fade. To take a stick and to stir up those embers and to kick up that fire so it burns hot again. Paul told Timothy to stir up the gift that was in him. 
And I believe that this gift he speaks of is the gift of his ministry and the abilities that God gave him to use in his service. And Timothy was not to let this gift fade. He was not to let discouragement overcome him, but he was to stay active in his service to the Lord. Well, now I want us to go to Romans chapter 12 to this uh, familiar passage. Uh, These verses are so familiar that sometimes I think that we might groan just a little when we're asked to read them again. I remember when I was uh, growing up and working in our bus ministry at our church in Kentucky, that every Saturday we would have a bus meeting. And these two verses in Romans were plastered into our minds, and they were like the life verses for the bus ministry. In Romans 12, uh, Paul says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The focus in Romans is the doctrine of salvation. This is the most advanced treatment of salvation and its related doctrines that we find in Scripture. Paul takes his readers from the election of believers in eternity past to their calling and their justification in the present and then on to their glorification in the future. Now, in the first part of this letter, laying the foundation of doctrine, that's Paul's purpose. And then after the doctrine is stated and understood, he moves into practical applications. And this is the usual method of Paul's writings. So here in the 12th chapter, he approaches the practical side of our Christianity. And that practical side can be summed up in the word service. We're saved to serve. And we must always be active to stay hot, to stay stirred up, and to be a flaming fire of service for our God. Now, there are two words uh, that stand out in these verses that demand close attention. Paul says that God's redeemed people are to be a living sacrifice. And that's not a concept to be passed over lightly. If you're a student of scripture, you're very well familiar with the term sacrifice. On Sunday evenings over the past year, we've studied the tabernacle and nearly every sermon references Old Testament sacrifices. In the Old Testament era, sacrifices were made every day. Animals were killed. Their blood was drained. The flesh and certain parts of that animal were burned on the altar. When the temple was dedicated... Solomon sacrificed 22,000 oxen, 120,000 sheep. And I think most of the time we just skip through those portions of Scripture and we don't give much thought to how bloody the Jewish religion was. Sacrifice, that was the centerpiece of their worship. And these were sacrifices that were commanded by God. And they were emblematic of that once-for-all sacrifice that would be made for by Christ on the cross. But then there were also other sacrifices in the Old Testament that God didn't command. These were human sacrifices. They were never sanctioned by God. It was always heathen idolaters like the worshipers of Molech that offered their children on altars. 
One of the reasons the Canaanites were to be destroyed from the promised land was because of their idolatry and their cruelty in offering human sacrifices. And so we come to this text in the New Testament and we see that God is still talking about sacrifice. Now, there is the sacrifice of Christ that was once for all, but there are still daily sacrifices spoken of in the New Testament. Now, sacrifice is still central to the Christian religion. Only this sacrifice is not the body of an animal. This is not a dead sacrifice to be offered, but a living one. Death is not required. And in this place, God is not asking for life and breath to be taken away so that the sacrifice is physically dead. Now, this sacrifice is spiritual. It is living. And the living sacrifice is you. It's to give up all of what you are, your body, your soul, and your mind, to give it up in sacrifice to the service of God. As Peter wrote in 1 Peter 2, verse 5, Ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Charles Hodge, the Princeton theologian of the 19th century, notes that our service to God is not transient, which means that it lasts for only a short time. I mean, a dead sacrifice, that that sacrifice is consumed by the fire in a short time, while a living sacrifice has the advantage of being perpetual. Now, in the verse we just read, Peter talked about stones. Stones are lasting. They endure. Buildings that are made of stone endure storms and they stand. And Peter said that you are living stones. Our service is living, meaning that it is unceasing, it is lasting, it is constant. It's never to be neglected. As you can't neglect your life because it continues, so you can't neglect your service. If you are alive, you are in service. And all that's left to be determined is what your service looks like and how effective it will be. You will be a good servant or you will be a poor one. But as a child of God, you are a servant. And that's what I want to talk to you about for a few minutes today. What does your service look like? What drives your service and what does it accomplish in you? Oh, Paul's approach in the first part of Romans is about the many aspects of this great salvation that we enjoy in Christ. Because of our salvation, in our gratitude, we should be moved to be a living sacrifice. Now, there are profound thoughts that are in this text. We can't exhaust them all. But I want to give you just a few thoughts on this subject as we we are reminded here about fanning the flame of our faith. Now, let's notice some things about God's grace in salvation and talk about service. First would be the obligation of service. God is never obligated to give us salvation. We're saved by God's free grace. It is by his choice alone. It's never merited by anything we do. God is only obligated to us as he obligates himself through the promises he makes. God can't be indebted to us by obligation. But whether we're saved or lost, we are obligated to him. We are always obligated 
to obey. So there's no one who can say, well, I don't even believe in God and thus I have no obligation to him. Well, the fact that God is our creator creates obligation. When God created Adam, his duty was perfect obedience. But even more than this, when God gave his son to purchase our salvation, he, he bought our redemption with the precious blood of his son. And he put us under super constraint to be his servants. Now, his act of creating the new man created in Christ Jesus is greater than the act of creating the original man, because in the creation of the new man, God actually gave of himself. Now, in Romans six, Paul said we are always the servants of something. Either we are the servants of sin or the servants of righteousness. And because of salvation, we became servants of righteousness. And we have this renewed obligation of obedience. That high price that God paid for us through the death of his son obligates us to God's service. And understand that this service is not optional because this type of servant in Scripture is a slave. We are slaves to God. We're not forced slaves, but we're slaves nonetheless. And although obligated, we are willingly obligated. Now, if you object to this mental picture of, of being a slave to anyone, then just sit back for a moment and consider that you have always been a slave to someone. One of the vivid pictures in Scripture is how we are enslaved in darkness, belonging to the kingdom of Satan. Now, many people love to talk about their freedom, but Jesus clearly taught that those who are not believers are enslaved to Satan. When he spoke to the Jews in John chapter 8, he said that those that believe in him are free, and he meant free from enslavement to Satan. In John 8, 31 and 32, then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, if ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Well, the unbelieving Jews were indignant about this statement. They answered him, we be Abraham's seed. We were never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou ye shall be made free? Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. The Jews were wrong about their spiritual slavery, and they were even self-deceived about their physical freedom. Yes, they were slaves. They'd been in slavery for hundreds of years. They were in bondage in Egypt. They were in captivity to the Babylonians. The Medes and the Persians ruled them. Before Christ came, the Greeks ruled them, the Seleucids ruled them, and now the Romans ruled them. They were wrong about physical slavery, but more importantly, they were wrong about spiritual slavery. Their souls were in bondage to sin. They were ruled by Satan, who is the God of this world. Well, salvation in Christ is deliverance from this slavery. Now, if you'll turn back just a few pages to Romans chapter 6... We see how sin is called slavery and then what happens when we're delivered from it. In Romans 6, verse 16, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness? But God be thanked that ye were 
the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. Here is the new obligation. We're free from sin, but that doesn't mean that we belong to nobody but us. When God's grace comes to us in salvation, we are freed from one master. We're freed from the slavery and the tyranny of sin to another master to serve another master in holiness and righteousness. We are redeemed to Christ. We're bought out of the slave market of sin and we are under the ownership of a new master who is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. First Corinthians 6.20 For ye are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Now, redemption in Scripture is the payment of a price to buy us out of the slave market of sin. There's a story told about a young girl who was captured and put on an auction block at a slave market. And there was a slave owner who was a very cruel man, and he bid to buy her at this auction. Every time that he bid, the little girl would cringe because she'd heard of his reputation. Fear would seize her. But then there was another man, and he also bid. He was a plantation owner, but he was always kind to his slaves, and he won the bid. And so he put his money down and started to walk away. The little slave girl began to follow him, and he turned around and said, You don't understand. I bought you to set you free. And the girl was stunned. She didn't know what to say. And so finally she fell to her knees, and she said, Thank you, thank you. I will serve you forever. And that's the picture of what Christ did for us. He bought us out of the slave market of sin. And because he loves us so much, we're willing to serve him. We have a willing obligation because of love. And our desire to serve him doesn't feel like obligation. It's freedom. The freedom that Jesus talked about. The freedom to serve a new master. Well, now we go on. Uh, to a second observation. This leads us into the motivation for service. Verse 1 says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. And here I believe is the chief motivator of service. The chief is the mercies we receive. I beseech, that's an interesting term. It's the same word that's used of the Holy Spirit in his work of comforting and helping the believer. This word is parakaleo, the same word from which we get paraclete. That means it means one who is called alongside to help. The Holy Spirit is our helper and he is our comforter. Well, as the word is used here, beseech is a gentle urging. It's an appeal for Christians to consider what God did for us in our salvation. Now, in the earlier chapters of Romans, we learned that we were sinners with no hope and we are under God's judgment. In chapter two, Paul explained that the hardness of our hearts caused us to treasure up wrath until the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. In Ephesians, Paul wrote to Gentile Christians and told them that before they came to Christ, they were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. He said, you are strangers from the covenant of promise, that you have no hope and without God in the world. 
And that's what God delivered us from. He delivered us from hopelessness. Well, here in Romans, he speaks of God's mercy. Are God's mercies enough to motivate you to serve him? Well, God could force your service if he chose to. But instead, he loads you with benefits that change the motivation of service from fear of punishment to sincere love because of his bountiful blessings. God could use judgment to motivate us. He could force us by scaring us to death. And maybe it wouldn't be too far off track for Paul to use that tactic. If you believe that Paul wrote Hebrews, as some do, you could turn to the 12th chapter and you would learn about chastisement. And God could say about chastisement, you do this or I'm going to beat you every which way from Sunday. Or you could go to Galatians and read in chapter 6, verse 7, that whatever you sow is the same that you will reap. And so God could say, I'm not going to give you any further mercy from now on. Perfect obedience is demanded or you will suffer the consequences. But that is not the tactic used to describe the living sacrifice. This sacrifice is not bound on an altar involuntarily. Notice the appeal that Paul makes at the end of verse number one. He says our service is reasonable. Why is it reasonable? Well, it's reasonable because of all the mercies that God gives. We receive peace and hope and glory and righteousness. We receive justification and reconciliation and eternal life and freedom from punishment. We receive intercession of the spirit and our sonship alongside of Jesus Christ. And we could just go on and on listing the mercies that God gives. David summed it up this way in Psalm 68 verse 19. Blessed be the Lord who daily loadeth us with benefits. Even the God of our salvation, Selah. If you doubt God's mercy, you can look at the 136th Psalm. Every verse, 26 verses in that psalm end this way, for his mercy endureth forever. God loads us with benefits, and his benefits are a strong motivation for service. God roots out selfishness as motivation. Now, selfishness, I think, uh, could be one of the antonyms of love. Service based on love, not selfishness. But as I say this, I want you to notice the second motivator. The second is enlightened self-interest. Now, is that a contradiction to what I just said? We serve God out of love, not selfishness. Well, is the motive of enlightened self-interest, is that contradictory? I don't think so. We need go no further uh, than Jesus' comments in Matthew 6, 19 and 20. He said, lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, where thieves do not break through nor steal. Now, Jesus had service in his mind when he said, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Serving for reward, that is not a taboo subject in Scripture. Oh, I've heard there are some who think it is. They say, no, no, you don't serve God for reward. Uh, there's even a song that says, do then the best you can, not for reward, not for the praise of men, but for the Lord. 
Now, I think that song is talking about pharisaical rewards. Those are wrong because the reward is the praise of men instead of praise from God. But there isn't anything wrong with working for God for rewards and then to seek his praise. Well done, thou good and faithful. What? Thou good and faithful servant. We sing, I've got a mansion just over the hilltop in that bright land where we'll never grow old. But then there are others that sing, oh, just give me a cabin in the corner of glory land. I think we would call that dim-witted underachievement rather than enlightened self-interest. I want more than a cabin. And I don't think there are any dirt-floored cabins in glory. His servants are not like slaves of this world. God always deals in superlatives. So we never want to downgrade what God is willing to give because of some pretended piety. This is called enlightened self-interest. We know that our service is good for us. The motivations are right. Greater service to God brings greater reward. Now we notice in the same vein, powerful persuasion of others. That's a third point we want to make about motivation. Powerful persuasion of others. Working for Christ is the way that we help spread the influence of God's kingdom in the world. And as God's kingdom increases, this is also a benefit for his people. Now, there are many Christians who who think that the way to change things is to get the government to enforce Christian standards and then things will be better. Government is certainly ordained by God. We, we know this. And as we've learned uh, too vividly, Human government will not purposely do God's work. Now, if we want a better place to live, we need to influence people to willingly serve God rather than pass laws so they will. You see, God already has enough laws. He has the Ten Commandments. They're codified. His laws are codified in the Ten Commandments. And then those same commandments are written on the human heart. And so if you want things to be better, work for the kingdom. Convert people to Christ. Serve Christ. And be a light to the world. Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your father, which is in heaven. So we have obligation to service and motivation for service. Now, thirdly, is the determination of service. Now, I know this is evident. There are plenty of people who don't understand why do Christians do what they do? Why would we want to take Sunday and dedicate morning and evening to attending church? Why would we take 10% or more of our income and bring it to the church and drop it in the offering plate? Why does someone dedicate their life to the mission field in Africa or Southeast Asia or some other country when it's so much easier to live in the comfort of a rich nation like America? Well, there are many Christians that don't want to be a living sacrifice. They gave up attending Bible class on Wednesday evenings a long time ago. They gave up the Sunday afternoon service. Now it's hard today to find a church that has two services on Sunday. And unfortunately, uh, when we start back because of this uh, virus that we're dealing with, we have to hold back on having two services. Churches have switched to Saturday night services so that they can have Sunday as a totally free day. Some like the restrictions of this pandemic because it's so much easier 
to sit in front of the TV or a computer and never have to leave the house. I seem to remember there is something in Scripture about this being the Lord's day, but most don't want to sacrifice to let Christ have a whole day. I have some relatives that their biggest priority for church was that they would find one that was near the beach. They wanted to find a church that, that near the beach so they could hit the church service uh, for about an hour or so and then head to the beach for the rest of the day. There are some say, what's the best way to get people to church? And they say, well, location, location, location. And I guess this may be why there are some churches that hold services in bars. Did you know that there are some church groups that gather in bars for Bible discussions? Did you know that there are some who rent nightclubs for services? Well, maybe what we should do is set up a tent in front of the Roner Park Cinemas. Or even better, let's put a, put a, a tent in the parking lot of Hooters. It, it's, it's hard to get Christians to be Romans 12, 1 and 2 Christians. Christ bought us. But there are many Christians that have bought the world's philosophy. They enjoy the world's entertainment. They flirt with the flesh. The total commitment of a living sacrifice is out of the question. So how does a faithful Christian make it to all the services? How does he faithfully bring his tithes and his offerings? How does he take time to study the Bible? How is it there are some of our people that show up every week to keep the grounds of the church neat and clean? Is that easy? What, what's with these people? Um, don't they have battles with their flesh? Did they leave the devil behind a long time ago and so the devil never bothers them anymore? Well, don't count on that. We all battle the flesh. And those who want to serve Christ battle Satan harder than those who don't. And we must be determined to win that battle against the devil and the flesh. Do you notice what Paul says must be given to God? He said, present your bodies a living sacrifice. Now, if you're saved and redeemed, your soul is purchased. Your soul is secure. The soul is set. You're on your way to heaven. Now, we're not talking about people here who haven't given their souls to God. That's what our present salvation is. Our souls are redeemed. But what does the scripture say about our body? Well, it says that we're still waiting for the redemption of our body. Romans 8 says that all creation groans and waits for this curse to be lifted. Everything is cursed because of the fall. And in Romans 8, he said Christians also groan for the curse to be lifted. Why? Well, because our souls are redeemed, but our bodies have an earnest paid or they have a down payment made for them waiting on final redemption. He says in Romans 8:32, even we ourselves groan within ourselves waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. Now here's the thing. Sin manifests itself through the body. Now that doesn't mean that human flesh in itself is evil, but isn't it the body through which evil works? If you were out late last night in some place that you shouldn't have been, was it only your spirit that was there or was your body there? Did you leave your body behind? How did you get there? If you drank something that you shouldn't drink, did your body swallow it? If you saw something that you shouldn't have seen, did your eyes see it? See, it's through the body that sin works. Now, one day this body is going into the grave and our spirits will be free from the corruption of this body. 
You can read 1 Corinthians 15 to find out all about that. One day, though, this body will be redeemed. It goes into the grave to be raised an incorruptible body. And we will get this body back in perfect shape. It will be healthy, wealthy, and wise. But until then, we must fight this body with all of its passions and its lust. And we must bring them in subjection to God. Oh, it takes great determination to beat back the flesh. Some of you are doing it, and some of you aren't. Some members of Berean let the flesh get the best of them. And they're not determined to fight it back and hold it down and keep it in subjection to Christ. Paul said we must be a living sacrifice because there's only one way that the Lord can work through us. He works through our body, doesn't he? Our spirit goes nowhere. It doesn't go anywhere without the body. I'm staring at empty pews today because the spirit is at home with your body. Despite some who say, well, I'll be with you there in spirit. But spirits don't play the piano. They don't sing in the choir. Spirits don't run the soundboard. And they especially don't preach or teach or put money into the offering plate. John doesn't give me an offering report that says, well, now here's the tally from those that are present today. And over here, this is the amount that the spirits gave. Well, the amount that the spirits give... What they gave goes into our spiritual checking account at Chase Bank, and we don't know how much is in that account because we can't see it. Do I really need to explain this, that if God is to work through you, he must have your body? He must have your voice to witness? He must have your hands to help? He must have your feet to go? He must have your ears to hear? And for him to have your body, you must be determined to fight back the natural desires and use your body for him. It's not easy. Every member of Berean would take the easy way. If it was easier to live for the Lord than for the world, then I don't think our membership would fight to do what the world does. If it was easy to get these eternal rewards, you'd stop giving your body to the world and yield it completely to God. Oh, you must be determined to do this. The only difference between a Christian that serves the Lord and another that doesn't is the determination to do it. We all have the same spirit in us. We all have the same power available to us. We all have the same Lord that saved us. Some are determined to serve and some aren't. Some are grateful enough to serve, but some aren't. Well, let's look at one more. Obligation and motivation and determination. And when you get all of this right, In the right perspective, what do you have? Well, you have, fourthly, proven consecration. You see it in the text? Being a living sacrifice proves that you are consecrated to God. In the second verse, And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, there's too much to deal with in this verse for the short time left. This is a power-packed verse, so I'm just going to pull it all together and throw it at you at once. When you forsake the world, when you are no longer conformed to it, when you don't think like the world, when you are transformed by a renewed mind, when you have a mind that is reoriented by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, what happens? It shows itself outwardly. And proves your consecration. 
When you're consecrated, your service is acceptable to God. Now, you can flip that around to say it this way. When your works are acceptable to God, it's, it, it means that you've done what he told his servants to do. You presented your body to him as a living sacrifice. Now, where will this consecration come from? Ultimately, of course, we say it comes from God. It's the Holy Spirit that works in us and sanctifies. But I also want to clarify by saying that it comes from the heart, from a heart that is pure, a regenerated heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Jesus said those things that are outside of us, they don't defile us. The defilement comes from what is in the heart. And the wicked, unchanged heart of a sinner defiles what he is on the outside. That's what makes him act the way that he acts. So you can tell by his actions what his heart is like. And the same is true of a Christian. A pure heart will show up on the outside. You can tell a person is a Christian by what he does. Isn't that what we learned last week? We know how Christians act. Consecration is proved by service, and service tells you the heart is right. Now, a living sacrifice looks like a living sacrifice, not a dead one. Now, I, I want to get as far away as I can from Christianity that thinks that sanctification is our work, not God's. I want to get away from those who say, well, if you just follow this list of rules, then you'll be sanctified. But at the same time, I don't want to become an antinomian. An antinomian is one who thinks that the law of God has no part to play in a Christian life. I don't want to treat the law as if it doesn't matter. In the Old Testament, sacrifices were made according to the law. Acceptable worship was specifically prescribed. Wrong worship was a recipe for disaster. You can ask Nadab and Abihu about being sloppy in worship. Now, we can do the very best that we can to eliminate a false sanctification. But that doesn't mean that we can't look better. It doesn't mean that we can't act better, or talk better, or think better. It's part of being a living sacrifice. Giving God our best because he deserves our best. So God wants you to put all that you are into it. This is what it means to be a living sacrifice. Don't forget to fan the flame of your faith in God. Remember what happened to you when you got saved. Think about God's mercies. Think of his benefits. Think of the price of redemption. Think of what Christ sacrificed for you. Think of your obligation and your motivation and determination. Think of your consecration. And if that doesn't stir you to service, then you're probably too thick to be stirred. Now, I do pray that we'll soon be back together. We are planning on coming back to church next week. I sincerely hope that we haven't missed so much that our sacrifice looks dead because the world clings to us. And we must be a living sacrifice, else this hopeless world finds no reason to hope. And isn't that what Christians are supposed to be? Aren't we living sacrifices to show people the hope we have in Christ? Well, we can't do that if we live in sin. We appear as hopeless as those who don't believe in Christ. Today, our country is in turmoil. There's the turmoil of health. This virus has been with us all this time and people die from that. There's turmoil in the economy, lost jobs, and people are worrying about how they can pay their rent and how they feed their families. And then, with all of that going on, just here we are now recently, 
at each other because there's turmoil in race relations. The world is dissatisfied and they always will be without Christ. And this is what we were made to do, to glorify God because life is nothing but turmoil without him. But now listen to how Paul says things change when we know Christ. We go back to 2 Timothy 1 and verse 6 and we'll read verse 7 with it. Wherefore I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Believers overcome the world. Believers don't fear the world's turmoil. We live in the power of God. We have sound minds. That, that means that we live in the discipline of self-control. We're servants of righteousness. Now, the hope of this world is Jesus Christ. He asks us to be living sacrifice so the world will know him and we will all glorify God together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time in your word today. We pray, Lord, that What's been spoken will sink down into the heart of Christians. I know there are many that are not active in service. Many don't really do much for the church at all. And we understand when people have health issues and there are problems that, uh, that can prevent uh, an active service to the Lord. But we also have many, many people that are able-bodied and can do everything else they want to do, but they don't choose to serve you as they should. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to be better at that, to make our bodies a living sacrifice. And as we preach today, we must have the determination to do it. It won't happen automatically. We will have to fight Satan at every turn because it's always there to push us down. Lord, help us to do this. Help us to look into your word and draw strength from it. And remember, remember what you did for us, all those mercies that you've given us. And make that our strongest motivation that we will serve you. Thank you again, Lord, for this day. We pray for everyone listening to us today. Uh, be with them. Watch over them. We pray for membership, for health, and uh, everything that goes with that, and, and just the turmoil we've spoken about that's going on. Lord, help us to get through that. And then we expect and we hope that you'll bring us together again this next Lord's Day. With all the difficulties that we'll have to make that happen, let's be determined to do it. We want to be here to fellowship with one another once again. Thank you, Lord, for all these things. We give you the praise. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Broner Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Brian Baptist Church. 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us online at www.bebaptist.org.